21CL Radio. Welcome to the Education Vanguard, where the 21st Century Learning International Radio team interviews educational leaders of today. Hey everybody, Michael Boll here coming to you for the Education Vanguard. I wake up with a new brain every day and it is up to me to figure out what it is going to be. This quote comes directly from Dr. Judy Willis, who was kind enough to sit down with us and discuss the intersection between what we know about the brain from a neurological point of view and how we educate our students. Dr. Willis she has an interesting background and story. After working as a neurologist for 15 years, she picked up her teaching credential and worked in the classroom for 10 years. She applied what she knew about the brain to her teaching practice. This interview was part of a, se- of a series of interviews of each keynote speaker from the 21st Century Learning Conference in Hong Kong this past December. I'm joined by Chris Carter and Jamie Willett. Chris Carter starts us off with the first question. Your talk, you brought out so much information. I was actually watching the Twitter feed just light up with comments. I'm going to ask you to comment on a phrase, growth-oriented mindset. Okay, the growth-oriented mindset is not my phrase. Carol Dweck has done work on the mindset. And the growth-oriented mindset is someone who believes that they have the potential to get better at something with effort. They know it might be hard work, but they believe in their potential. Somebody with a fixed mindset is someone who has no confidence that no matter that any amount of effort that they have the potential to succeed. And these are things that can develop based on past experiences. You know, I was noticing, and I haven't finished reading yet, but the, the learning to love math I need to read that for my daughter's sake. She's 11 now in sixth grade. And you come up with the expression map readers versus explorers, right? And for me, I associated that with something like a a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. Do you want to expand upon that a bit so so that the audience understands? Um, It could be, but I was using it in terms of characteristics of a learner. I mean, I'm not trying to nor is it even accurate to say someone's a visual learner or auditory learner because it no longer is, it's never been proven and it's actually been disproven that, right, that using those things are necessary. But there are certain preferences, learning preferences. So I describe kids as explorers or navigators that the example is if your child goes to the zoo, do they want to go from cage to cage and not miss one, be very systematic? Or do they see one that they like and then see another one and want to go there? So it's just a loose definition of the type of learner they are. And then I made suggestions in terms of that book in math for those terms, if you're a navigator or explorer, just to help this type of child is going to, likely to have this type of problem, and here are some things to do. Well, we appreciate that because as teachers, and many of us watching are, the reality is we have to differentiate our instruction somehow. And it's important to learn that, that there's several different types of kids in the classroom. And breaking it up that way, I think, is helpful. So thank you very much. Yeah, good. One. Okay, so we have all these laptops and these one-to-one devices, iPads, whatever, in schools, all the way down to pretty young ages. You'll see them in first grade, second grade. So there's all this neuroscience suddenly becoming interesting to a lot of parents. Are we, as teachers and parents, doing our students uh, and our children a disservice by allowing them to use these devices? I think that it's not even a question of allowing because it's inevitable. It's the way 
Telev when television came out, it was a total debate. You know, is it going to make our kids more violent? Is, is it bad for them? And good or bad, there's no, nothing that's going to keep a kid away from a computer. And it's much better to have them be honest about it and do it in your presence than go sneak one, start lying about wanting to what, do what they do. Uh, so just the way it happened with television, early familiarity with management and observation and co-working with your computer and their computer so you're not spying on them but you're doing things collaterally and doing searches together and discussing validity and building their executive functions as they use the tool. What's truth? What's lies? What's, is everything that's here something that's good? I can trust. So there's, it's, it's a really useful tool and by allowing it to them to build skills of using the tool and showing them that there's things on it that aren't so good, then that's, the, that's going to be who they become. They're, they won't, without the honesty from the beginning and guidance, they will not have wisdom. So don't try to keep it away from them and there's no evidence that it causes brain damage or that it causes, the, the problems that it causes is with anything that is very, uh, when someone is overly involved in something, whether it's drugs, sex, rock and roll, or computer games, if they're overly involved at the expense of other things that make their life high quality, then they have a problem. It's an, then it's an addiction, and you'd want to need to manage it the way you would an alcohol problem. Um, I'm absolutely honored to be holding this mic and asking you questions. Um, one thing is that throughout your presentation, there, was, there were parts where you referred to your children. And as a teacher and a parent and a neurologist, does having a, a better scientific understanding of how children function impact your parenting or your practice of teaching in any way? Certainly uh, impacting my teaching, and that was my hope when I went from, left, left my neurology practice to become a teacher, it was in hopes that my background in neuroscience would apply to intervention strategies, things that could be useful for teachers. And in terms of parenting, nothing that I, uh, like most parents, the fact that I was a physician, when my kids said something medically wrong with them, I would make suggestions, but if their friend, who was also 12 or 13, told them something else, well, that's the one they took. Uh, when I was teaching math, if they had a math question, and I started showing them, no, that's not the way my teacher does it, and slam a door. So no better parenting of my kids. Good, better parenting. I could help others with their kids, but couldn't do a thing. Kids were my kids were my kids on their own. Well, thank you so much for your honesty, and I feel better now as a teacher and parent when my child also ignores my device. But I teach high school. You're in sixth grade. What I find fascinating about your background is that you're, you're a neurologist, 15 years active neurologist, and then you go into teaching. And I have seen in other realms where these seemingly disparate fields come together and there's new learnings that come out of it because you have insights that others, others don't have. Right? So my question is, was there a slow accumulation of desire on your part to become a teacher? Was there a gestalt moment where you said, you know, I've got now to go into the field and practice this and then bring it to other teachers? It was the decision to leave neurology to become a teacher was over maybe 
a year and a half, and it was a reaction to the number of kids that were being suddenly sent to me for evaluation because their behavior in school suggested they might have an underlying neurologic dis disease disorder, or attention disorder, OCD, uh, obsess uh, behavioral problems like uh, oppositional defiance syndrome. So they were being sent to be evaluated to see whether they had Tourette's, et cetera. And the numbers went up. It was significant. It was maybe from two a week to 10 a week within a year and a half period. And the incidence of kids that actually had a neurologic underlying pathology was no different. So why are all these kids being sent to me and yet they don't have any problems when I evaluate them? And that's since it wasn't hard to figure out because most of the referrals came from schools. When I went to the schools, talked with the teachers, that's when I found out, because Santa Barbara's not that large, and I knew these teachers, my kids that had had them, so I, I knew it wasn't that they were bad teachers. But when I saw it was happening, it took, you know, it was literally, that was sudden, I'd easily seen. I'd walk into the classroom, and they didn't have the beans growing in the window, or they weren't hatching chicks, there was no group work, there wasn't, there wasn't laughter, there wasn't glitter on the floor. So that's... I saw that kids were either sitting in rows and being lectured to or doing drill sheets, even down to first grade. And why were these teachers doing it? They were good teachers. They used to do those things. And that's when I found out that the curriculum demands, the standards, were such that they now had to teach much more each year, starting in first grade. So it was, no, this isn't acceptable because I saw these kids in states of stress that can chronically change their brain function and besides their their joy. So that's when it was not even it was not even an ethical dilemma. It was how can I not be a a healer if they, I have a chance to do something that can prevent neurologic problems in the office, yeah I can intervene, but these kids are undergoing neurologic toxic experiences. So that's when it was go to the classroom. And my expectation was learn to be a teacher. And for one class a year, 25, 30 kids, if my strategies and ideas worked, for example, I know a lot about memory. So if they have to memorize and I can have them do it in half the time, by the way, I could teach them, then half the, the other half they could just bring back the good stuff from the old days. And so that was my plan, to keep doing that, uh, to help make a difference 30 kids a year, and maybe, if anything, work to write about it. But it was really a surprise, much more of a surprise to me than my career turn to teacher was my career turn after 10 years to having written the six books and then being full-time on doing lectures and presentations and workshops. Well, speaking of those books, I want to say thank you, one, for not just seeing a problem but, or a challenge, I guess, but well, it's a problem and, and, and addressing it, actually taking action, because in the end, that's what we have to do. Right? Be the change, like Gandhi said, you want to see in the world. And I noticed in your books, what's so wonderful is, one, it's in, they're in language that people can understand, which is thank you, right? And then you actually offer like lesson plan ideas. Now, here's what's happening neurologically. And here's how to stimulate that. Could you give us just one example of a lesson that being modified has so much been enhanced by the application of your neurological uh, studies? Okay. Um, 
This is something that's important to me because when I went to teacher's, teacher education, got my master's, you're told a lot of things in a lesson plan that you should do, but there was no prioritizing of which one is the most important. And when you're doing them for your supervisor, you, know, you do all 20, but in real life, you're not gonna be able to do all of these 20 preparation things and write them down. So when I went out there, I never knew how important one of them was. As I started teaching and at the same time keeping up with the neuroscience research, uh, it, it, I, just, I was learning more and more about memory. And the evidence was mounting that memory is stored in patterns based on relationships. The new must match with the known for encoding to take place. And it absolutely is mandatory that prior knowledge is activated. If there's no activation of what is already known, then when the new gets into the hippocampus, it goes away, it doesn't stick around. And we need to do it because students don't know what they know that is prior knowledge. So when that became evident to me, it was, oh no, all those times that I didn't activate prior knowledge, I, that was, that was uh, uh, disturbing. But even as I kept at it and, and evaluating it, the one, the, one of the best ways to activate prior knowledge to make that memory link and sustain with the whole patterning relational system is with graphic organizers, which I absolutely never used because it didn't seem quite worth it to figure out which ones were the best and to teach the students all the different ones. I just didn't have enough familiarity. So I said, oh, I don't need to do that. Well, it turns out that the more I know and the more research that I see, they are so perfect. The brain, it's like giving the brain an extra brain. It's giving, putting the information in the format that the brain can link to, hold on to, construct extended memories and even concepts. So do what I didn't do activate prior knowledge, and use some graphic organizers. Um, I've read your article on standardized tests, and now that you mention how students are going through neurologically toxic way of learning, and coincidentally, you are in Hong Kong, China, and this is where rote learning is a very big thing, and a lot of the adults try to hone in the students into boxes, and and decide our worth through numbers. And as you mentioned in the presentation, one thing that's very dangerous for students is a fixed mindset. But oftentimes in Asian countries, it is difficult that the students go out of their way to change something because it's the parents that are imposing it on them. And your presentation was actually on how the parents could change. So in those instances, when those students can't change what the parents are doing, do you have any advices for those ones in the fixed mindset for the children to, but the yeah. children themselves who feel they are in the fixed mindset so uh, are we talking about the ones who feel that they're not good at it and mm -hmm. they they need to be a good piano player because their parents want them to or that they definitely that does happen but the thing is we are graded by numbers and the parents could change the way we are we feel about ourselves but oftentimes it is a case that the parents don't help us. So in those cases, when students feel like they're inadequate because of their numbers, do you have any advice for I those students? I see what you're saying. Well, it's important, as I mentioned before, that kids realize that, they, that their brain will do things to them. Just knowing about their brain's programming 
to get into a fixed mindset is empowering to show them, oh, my brain is, I, I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm being more hesitant. I, I, I'm not taking that harder class. I just don't think I can do it. If they know about this fixed mindset that comes about because they've gotten feedback that they've tried and haven't succeeded, that will help them break the cycle. It's also they need to know that from their other experiences that they have gotten better at things that they were terrible at at the beginning and that they were even worse at, at building the skill than other kids were. But now they're just as good as everyone. So whatever, whether it's a sport, bike riding, or keyboarding, they, when they recognize that they did go from low to high, that can motivate them to realize their brain's potential. And knowing about neuroplasticity, you can change your brain, your genes, not genetics, and letting them realize that their parents are imposing things on them that are making the situation worse. And that's going to happen throughout their whole lives. There are going to be people that are obstacles and people that are potential helpers. And just play the game and take your own measure of yourself. Okay, so Dr. Willis, I went to your keynote this morning. And so while I was in there, I pulled out my Twitter feed. And when you'd say a point that I agreed with or thought was interesting, I put it up on that Twitter feed. And then I checked to see what other people are, are saying about what you're saying. And I'm listening to you at the same time. So what impact, positive or negative, is that having on my executive functioning and my ability to understand and absorb what you have said and take it away with me? Uh, if the question is kind of about multitasking, uh, if you're doing multiple things at once, so what's the outcome going to be? And so far the research shows that the brain is unable to multitask. It's, it's like you're not able to take your uh, left hand and, and hit a hammer, accurate, hammer and nail accurately in your right hand and, and pull a bow and arrow. I mean, it's, uh, the brain is not, cannot do that. So, but what it does, what appears to be multitasking, is quickly switching back and forth. And for most people, the amount of time it takes to get the two jobs done it's, is going to be longer by splitting them and having to switch back and forth. So multitasking doesn't save time. However, for some people, not multitasking is a stressor. I mean, the feeling that, no, I have to do that now, and I have to do that now. If it's going to put them in a state of stress, then, then that is probably going to be more negative than the multitasking. Just, just recognize that multitasking is not as efficient as being able to stay in focus in one area and then to the other. But stress is, a worse, is, is even more inefficient. So as long as it's an informed judgment, it's reasonable. So the final question, it's an elevator pitch. You've got three minutes to make your point to a person who, if they buy it, they're, gonna, they're a change agent. They can get things done. What do you say to them about the neurological realities of learning? That the brain is limitless in its potential. And unless somebody understands that and believes it, then they're limited right there. But physiologically, the phenomenon 
of the limitless ability of the brain to be better and better at anything that's practiced with feedback, it is limitless. There used to be a belief that we only use 10% of our brain. This is absolutely not true. Every part of the brain is activated with enough periodicity for it not to be pruned away. So understanding the physiology that if I use it, if I build it, I can be as great as I, I choose to be. I can wake up, I will wake up with a new brain every day, and it's up to me what it's going to be. That is beautiful, and I'm showing it to my daughter, and I'm showing it to my students. I want them to hear that from a person who cannot be refuted. Thank you very much. This interview was brought to you by 21st Century Learning International. Find us on the web at 21clradio.com.